From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet, coming to you live on tape from New York City. Here with me in person is Imogen Rose Smith, a fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. Good to be back actually in person with you today. In your new offices as well. It's quite lovely to have you here. And joining us by the magic of podcast technology from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hello, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. Um, I'm sorry not to be with you there, but um, it was good to see you recently. It was. Well, today on the show, we're talking about everyone's favorite TLA. That's three-letter acronym, ESG. For those who don't know, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Three great words. More than 6,000 separate ESG indexes were created in the last year. There's an incredible increase in demand for these kind of investment products. How these non-financial factors drive financial performance is one of the biggest questions in investing. How they drive actual impact is the topic of this podcast. Is the increase in ESG approach to investing leading to an improved environment and an improved society? Imogen, is ESG A-OK? ESG is not A-OK. Why not? It is in danger of becoming a marketing catch-all, which gets it away from what was in a sense that the real purpose of ESG originally, which was to marry these so-called non-financial um, factors with real economic concerns and outcomes. So if you look at what's happening in the UK, if you look at what's happening in the US, the UK we have Brexit, in the US we have political stalemate and currently a government shutdown. Uh, and, and so you're saying that looking at these, uh, the landscape here, we have rising income inequality, we have uh, growing and increasing climate change and, and factors uh, influencing that. So therefore, ESG hasn't been successful because it hasn't fixed our broken systems. It's almost like you've heard me say this before. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was in the UK recently and ESG was everywhere. Like the FT every single day had an article, one or more article on ESG, money managers saying how, you know, they're sustainable, you know, questions about, you know, should companies have a broader purpose in returning money to shareholders, value to shareholders. You know, there was like ads on the tube for ESG ETFs. And when you say ads on the tube, you don't mean YouTube or no, the, I mean the television. Like the subway. The, the underground. I can translate. Wow, okay, great. <laughs> My mother knows what ESG is. It was exciting times. And there's this huge disconnect between this rhetoric around, you know, sustainable investing, investing with purpose, whatever you want to call it, and the, the sort of social and environmental realities that we see about it around us. Okay, so David, is that disconnect, is that fair to place the blame for the fact that we've had ESG investing for a while now, and yet still our environment and our society uh, <laughs> have problems? Is that fair to lay, lay the blame for that on ESG itself? Uh, <laughs> that feels like a setup, but, um, <laughs> I don't think that's what I did to be fair. <laughs> because and I, I'm going to resist the trap that you guys have laid for me, which is to make me the defender of ESG. However, I will say this because obviously the answer is no, the world is facing deep problems and urgent problems, as you said, uh, on, on all sides of, of all oceans and, and ESG has not resolved that. However, there was a case in point just recently um, and we had the, the spectacle of, of the fake Larry Fink letter and the real Larry Fink letter. And Larry Fink, of course, is the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, something like $6.4 trillion assets under management. When Larry Fink speaks, 
people listen. And in fact, when fake Larry Fink speaks, people listened as well. And the, uh, you mentioned the FT and others picked up the fake letter and then the day later was followed by the real letter. Uh, hold that thought for a moment and, and think about PG&E. BlackRock is the largest investor black, through its various funds and whatnot, the largest institutional investor in PG&E uh, with about 9% of the shares real quick, of this. PG&E is? Pacific Gas and Electric in California this week indicated it was going to file for bankruptcy. And the reason it's going to file for bankruptcy is because the fires in California over the last two years have resulted in a huge pile of liability that basically wipes the company out and they have to go to court and get bankruptcy protection. And the company is arguing that they should be relieved from that because they are victims, relieved from some of that liability, because they are victims of severe climate-driven weather which invariably is the case in California, which has been, you know, bone dry and whatnot and has burned like crazy the last two years. And PG&E bears power lines and whatnot have helped set, set off some of those fires and they're liable for that under state law. So it's, a, it's an absolute climate-related risk. Lo and behold, it comes to pass that ESG funds that were screened for climate risks, by and large, screened out PG&E and weren't, uh, and weren't exposed to this loss of shareholder value by virtue of a bankruptcy filing. Whereas non-ESG funds that were just investing the broad market did include PG&E, which was considered a you know, reasonable utility to own. And so therefore you had in rough terms, and there's a lot of detail to this, in rough terms, you had ESG screen out the risk, climate-related risk of a big stock and keep ESG investors somewhat more safe from that risk. So that's an interesting ESG case. Yeah. So David, I think you just made a really compelling case that ESG investors could benefit from an ESG approach to investing, and they can financially outperform by incorporating ESG factors and considerations into their investment analysis. But that's not getting at the question we are actually posing to you, which is, you know, ESG investing hasn't mitigated climate change itself. It's helped those who are aware of climate change and the exposure of uh, their assets to the risk of climate change to be able to kind of navigate and protect their investments in this, but it's not actually leading to fewer California wildfires. Okay, so they are, you know, that's an extremely good question, and it requires a sort of logic model that, you know, is probably beyond my quantifiable capacity to, to actually construct. But the logic model goes something like non-financial factors like ESG, and, you know, under the rubric of ESG, will point investors to the better actors in every in any sector and the and and the worse actors and therefore there'll be a general identification of who's better managed on in, on all these fronts and that means you know cutting your carbon low, you know footprint it also means knowing the human rights factors in your supply chain it also means women on boards and diversity in management and whatnot, which is, you know, generally falls under the G part. And so better companies will be identified, worse companies will be identified, more money will, will flow over time in the public markets. There's a big question mark, which Imogen will, will, will know much more about, of whether that makes a hill of beans a difference in performance of companies. You could argue that over time, companies will seek to be in those better categories and will marginally improve their operations to get better ESG scores. That's one way that change could occur. Um, the other way it could occur is, you know, indexes and whatnot and fund managers will drop companies um, and those companies will have a harder time getting capital and that'll increase the cost of capital. But those are very minute, you know, sort of far off. Right. But, but David, that's still getting at the, the performance issues. And, and, and what we're trying to get at is with ESG investing, these hard global problems are still getting worse. So Imogen, 
is this a failure of ESG investing or is this more a a failure of society as a whole? It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely more a failure of society as a whole than it is. You can't lay, you know, the fact that the world is getting worse at the feet of ESG investing. Um, the idea that sort of ESG investors are going to reward good actors and punish bad actors and that, in, in a sense, will become a risk mitigating strategy. I don't think it's that black and white. I mean, so take PG&E as an example, right? PG&E wasn't actually a particularly bad actor, right? If you can sort of compare what PG&E is doing to say Exxon, PG&E was actually fairly progressive in terms of coming up with policies around climate change. They were in a bad situation and, and they've been doing a lot of renew, you know, using a lot of renewable energy. You're absolutely right. Their CEO recently departed makes the case that the liabilities they face make it hard for them to fulfill the clean energy pledges that they've made under California's relatively um, uh, ambitious, you know, climate change, climate action plans. Just to be clear, they're not going bankrupt because uh, they weren't taking steps to address climate change. They're going bankrupt because under California law, you are liable for the damages if you uh, are seen to be a cause of a fire. And some PG&E uh, equipment, if you will, what was seen to be a cause of a fire, but the fires were exacerbated because of the effects of climate change. So therefore, uh, the, these, you know, the most expensive fires in history uh, are generally going to be placed, the, the liability for them is going to be placed on the, on the hook uh, for right. PG&E. They're, yeah. they're claiming to be a victim of climate change, not a, not a cause of climate change. Exactly. So it's, but it's, at the end of the day, it becomes an economic argument, not an ethical argument, which is exactly what we should be talking about, right? So, so the logical question to ask, and the logical question for portfolio managers to ask, you know, in response to PG&E is, okay, who's next in line, right? Like, what, what are the companies, what are the sectors what what of my investments have the most immediate risk associated with climate change? And to me, like that's a valuable and useful conversation to have. And if I then invest my capital in ways to try and mitigate that risk, that that is valuable. If I can then go further and try and invest my capitals in ways that will prevent the damage from climate change, or better yet, you know, reduce carbon better still however that's not what i'm doing as an esg investor because the majority of my assets as an esg investor are likely to be passive and they're likely to be in indices and so really it's about you know what what are the tools i then have to influence the actions of companies they're very limited well that i think i think i think, I think that's right so i think we should just se separate it which is does anybody's particular ESG ETF that they've invested in or mutual fund make a bit of difference? People should not kid themselves, basically, right? But the fact that so much money is moving in that direction and that requires companies to report more and more, and there's all kinds of reporting regimes coming into play, particularly around climate, but also other things around deforestation and water use and other things that are coming into play. Companies increasingly have to report. There's a whole movement, as, as you know well, Imogen, to make the reporting of those things more and more, quote, material in their financial reporting, which drives, you know, disclosure requirements and whatnot. And so so all of these impacts, as we would call them, are becoming much more transparent and, and, and being seen as, as material risk factors. And I guess that's the that's the biggest point is just 
you know, once these risks are disclosed, they then have to be dealt with, you know, at an SEC, you know, disclosure kind of level, um, mitigated in various ways. And, and, and this just becomes, you know, another forcing mechanism t for companies to change their operations. It doesn't really change the investment calculation, but it might change the internal operations of a company that says, oh, we have this fire risk and now we're do now we've supported this new forest resilience bonds that blue forest capital i believe um uh, do i have that right you do um, i was enjoying the I'm shout out about. to forest resilience bonds <laughs> yeah forest resilience bonds everybody's favorite example because it makes this exact point which is you can actually do something about it if you connect the beneficial returns and the risk mitigation and, and whatnot into the original investment and you do and you do the right thing those are the kind of mechanisms that we want to see obviously so then it becomes really interesting, right? Because you say, okay, can I hedge my utility risk with forest, forest resilience bonds, right? There are, in fact, investments out there and there are market mechanisms out there that enabled me to be better insulated from some of these climate risks and indirectly, but in fact directly, benefit the environment and try and reduce some of the negative impacts of climate change. Right. That's what I want to get is how, how, how much of this is of risk mitigation for an investor to protect their assets versus risk mitigation for the environment and for society to be negatively harmed. I see ESG is definitely a very smart approach for investors to mitigate their exposure of their assets to the harmful effects of rising inequality and the harmful effects of rising climate change. Okay, but I don't necessarily uh, see. Uh, I, I need you to help make the case to me because I want to see it, but I'm not there. That the increase in this approach isn't just good for investors, but it's actually good for society and the environment itself. So, arguably, right, that is the distinction between ESG and impact investing, right? That that if I'm an impact investor, I am concerned about the the impact of my investment, and that most likely means in a sort of broad societal and environmental way. As an ESG investor, I'm more concerned with either A, how does this company more or less, because it's most often public traded corporations, line up with my values, and B, what is the impact of this to me? And so that's my point in a sense, is that it's, it's not plugging into the sort of broader societal fabric. So I wonder, David, if this is all a proxy fight in some ways. And I don't mean proxy as in uh, <laughs> proxy voting in, in uh, public companies in their annual uh, voting seasons. Uh, I mean a proxy fight for other issues. Are, you know, in the Anand Giridharadas uh, framework of market world, are we too focused on market world and not focused enough on political economy and, and on government uh, action? So, so to many in the developed world, our democratic governments are struggling to effectively provide solutions to the challenges that many see as existential, like wealth inequality and climate change. And so if there's no governmental approach to addressing these issues because of political stalemate in, in various uh, ways and rise of nationalism and all these other kind of factors that we're seeing across the, the developed world, then is it better for corporations to step into the breach and address them? And as BlackRock CEO Larry Fink writes in his 2019 letter to company CEOs, he calls, quote, stakeholders are pushing companies to wade into sensitive social and political issues, especially as they see governments failing to do so effectively. And he goes on to write, companies cannot solve every issue of public importance, but there are many, from retirement to infrastructure to preparing works for the jobs of the future, that cannot be solved without corporate leadership. So, David, does Larry Fink have a point that, you know, is this 
companies are stepping into the breach to address these issues that perhaps if we had working democratic governments and institutions that uh, were equipped to provide solutions to these challenges, we wouldn't need companies to step up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he's arguing whether they, I mean, I don't want to argue whether they should or not. I think he's, I think he's right that they are, right? That there is obviously, you know, it's no surprise, a, a gap of public leadership now. So somebody's going to step into that void. And um, where to start here? I think the, the question is, ESG, uh, Imogen put it very well, ESG is the corporate and generally public equities version of transparency, reporting, materiality, and ultimately risk analysis and risk mitigation, but at least risk analysis. And uh, an impact is the much more proactive, we're going to try to solve these problems with market-based solutions that can attract private capital. And those are different things. And one of the things that's happened in the press, not it's not this public-private thing question, but it is this, people have said ESG is not is failing, and therefore the whole ball of wax is is, is not having any impact. And so, you know, there's some distinctions to be made in some of the recent recent articles that have, that have appeared that are sort of saying impact is basically full of hot air. Um, and I'm not, again, <laughs> there's a lot of hot air. <laughs> um, so first, ESG versus impact is one thing. And then public versus private or market world versus public accountability. You know, I'm of the all of the above camp. Um, I know there's a lot of critique of, you know, of the corporate and, and billionaire, you know, uh, plutocracy that we that we're that we're moving into, and I, I agree with those critiques. But I also think we want to have enlightened corporates, and we want to have enlightened billionaires, for that matter, just like we want to have enlightened public leaders. And we basically need all hands on deck to tackle these questions. I'm not against public mandates. It's particularly on climate. I think they're essential. But ultimately, even those public mandates will work their way down to corporate behavior and investor behavior as incentives or tax breaks or programs or investment, you know, whatever. So it's ultimately going to going to result in corporate behavior and investor behavior change. And, and I say, like I say, all, you know, let's let's pull all the levers. So I think, in a sense, the problem is that we need systems change. Um, and, and we need systems change really across the board from sort of grassroots to our major institutions. And that, you know, the, the, the Larry Finks of this world, consciously or not, are in the business of perpetuating the status quo. And to, to what extent does ESG then become the mechanism by which they perpetuate the status quo um, and this sense that, hey, we're all, you know, we're all good people and we're all in this together and we all had the best of intentions and, you know, we're all going to. So, you know, Paul Pogba, the um, outgoing CEO of Unilever, made some comment about six months ago about how sort of, you know, you get the right six important people in the room and they can achieve great things and change the world. And on, on the one hand, yes, that's true in some senses. On the other hand, again, to my point, like it ain't working, right? That that we're seeing, you know, social inequality get more extreme. We're, we're seeing, you know, the increasing impacts of climate change. And we're seeing, you know, horrendous things happen in governments. So the idea that a bunch of, you know, well-meaning billionaires can change the world for good, the idea that, you know, the CEOs, corporations are going to be the ones to, like, you know, lead us out of danger it's not working and it has the danger of being sort of detrimental and in fact undermining what needs to happen because, you know, that replaces the reforms that need to happen. I track totally with you up until that last sentence that that undermines the, the, the reforms. And I just, 
I, I, again, I'm going to resist the trap to be seen as the defender of the corporations <laughs> and the billionaires. <laughs> but I will say that... Because it's a weird place for you to find yourself in as, you know, the Californian. <laughs> but I will say that, 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 that to, to reveal my true intellectual words, I would say it's more dialectical than that. And the dialectical uh, synthesis actually is that the stage of development, and you said yourself earlier that the fact that this ESG framework even is well understood in financial terms and even on the subway, the tube in, in, in London is a landmark you know, advance from where the discussion was 10 years ago. And I just say, just take that as a marker that the discussion moves forward, the, the predicate gets laid, the data gets collected. And that sets the stage for the next set of demands, which frankly, just to tie it back, is the difference between Larry Fink's very milquetoast 2019 letter where he talks about purpose, just like you say, which purpose is kind of, I mean, if you think ESG is vague, purpose is super vague, right? And doesn't go to where the fake letter went, which was very specific investment decisions that arguably would have, you know, been a risk reduction and, a, and an impact driven uh, agenda on climate action. And so Larry Fink, is an example of what you said, where we need to take it the next level, but beyond platitudes and rhetoric about purpose and even ESG, and take it to let's drive the capital in the direction that that, that we need the future investment to go. And that's that's I think what we're we're now ready to do. So I don't want to spend our time, you know, di- you know, trashing ESG. I want to get on with with what we've now been got the got the platform to do. And yeah, I mean. Again, to be clear, I think there is a lot of there is a lot of positive to say about ESG, and there has been a lot of positive developments in the last decade. I just don't I don't think you can sort of separate one from the other, and that you can't you know you can't look at the advert on the tube and be like rah rah ESG, and then you know look at the newspaper and be like oh my god Brexit. Like the world has to be interconnected. You can't you know the, the two things don't exist separately from one another. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you, David Bank. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Imogen. And thank you, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, David. <laughs> and special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at Impact Alpha. We also want to hear from you. If you have more to add to this topic, please join the Impact Alpha Slack channel exclusive for Impact Alpha subscribers. If you like the podcast, consider just telling two other people about it. You can also leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, maybe keep it to yourself. Just kidding. We love your feedback. Drop us an email at editor at impactalpha.com. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time. <laughs>